Welcome to Zebra Talks, where people living with hypermobility syndromes hear their experiences reflected in conversations with guest experts and fellow zebras living their best bendy lives. I'm your host, Dr. Libby Hinesley, physical therapist and author of Yoga for Bendy People. The information and opinions shared on this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and are not a substitute for diagnosis and treatment by a qualified healthcare professional. And now, let's get started with today's Zebra Talk. Today, I'm happy to welcome Victoria Daler to the podcast. Victoria is a patient scientist with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and a recent graduate of the post-bac pre-medical program at Columbia University. With a background as a professional contemporary dancer, she's now pursuing a career in medicine and research. Victoria is currently the clinical research coordinator for the Norris Lab at the Medical University of South Carolina. Victoria uses her research and personal experience to share educational posts on Instagram about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, joint hypermobility, and disability. Victoria, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Libby. I am I'm looking forward to being a listener on your first season. Thank you. I'd love to start out by having you tell listeners a little bit more about yourself, your personal experience with hypermobility, and how that has led you into the work you do now. Yeah, it's a funny story. I grew up as a dancer since I was about two years old and kept going through college and even became a professional dancer and hadn't heard the term hypermobile until I was in my mid-20s. Even though I definitely fit the bill, I was doing all sorts of contortions with my body and getting injured. And yeah, I didn't realize that that was what was happening the whole time. I thought it was just this unique aspect of my dancing. And I actually kind of let that evolve into like a source for my artistic voice. So whenever I found out I had EDS, it was very complicated for all the health and emotional reasons, but also I had it so intertwined into my artistry. So I did try for a period of time to, to work through that, but eventually just became really fascinated with the disorder and switched over to medicine and pursuing that now. I'm really excited to learn about some of the work you're doing. Let's start by having you describe basically what we know about EDS as a whole from a genetic standpoint. And then from there, we'll go into what your lab is doing. Yeah. So as a whole, right now, if you Google it, there are different numbers, 13 versus 14 subtypes. I'm going to stick with 14 when I discuss today. I've always wondered that because I've seen 13 and 14. I usually just go with 13, but I've been curious what happened to that 14th I read about somewhere along the way. Yeah, I'll get into it a little bit. The 14th, there are two classical like types. There's type one and type two, and there are different genetic variations. From what I read, I think in a paper published this year, there are only nine people reported with type two. So it's extremely rare. That's probably, I suppose, why people say 13 types, but there might be even more. (laughs) We'll see. So yeah, there's the hypermobile type. HEDS, and that's the most common subtype. I'll talk more about it later, probably. And then classical CEDS, it's about one in 20,000 to 40,000 people. 
Um, and then vascular VEDS. VEDS is one in 100,000 to one in 200,000. And that one's more life-threatening. I say these prevalences, and to give a little reference, the National Institute of Health, the NIH, they consider anything of one in 1,500 people to be rare. So classical and vascular are considered rare conditions, and all the other subtypes are ultra rare. They're very, very rare, less than one in a million. So a lot more research needs to be done on these rare conditions as well. But the Norris lab that I work at, we study primarily the hypermobile type, but we're interested in everything. Gotcha. That's helpful. It sounds like among all the subtypes identified of EDS up to now, most of them are quite rare and yeah. some are ultra rare, but the one that is just not rare, maybe at all is the hypermobile type, or at least we could say it's the most common one. And I'll ask you about the prevalence a little bit later, but is it correct to say that all of the other types of EDS, aside from the hypermobile type, are understood from a genetic standpoint? That's a great question. So far, all of the subtypes except HEDS do have a known genetic variant. Okay. So for all of those subtypes, you can go see a geneticist or a genetic counselor, have your blood drawn, they send it off to the lab to be sequenced, and then you'll get a result. If you have a positive result that's a pathogenic variant, uh, the doctor or geneticist or genetic counselor can inform you what that means. And that might say you have one of the rare types or any of the subtypes that are not HEDS. Okay. Let's say someone suspects they might have the hypermobile type or their doctor suspects they might have the hypermobile type. If they're extremely lucky, they have a doctor that suspects that they would not have a blood test necessarily, unless it was to rule out some other types, but instead the hypermobile type is diagnosed um, via a different set of criteria. That's not a blood draw. Can you talk a little bit about that? Correct. Yeah. So to date, there has been no known cause of HEDS. The genetic variant has not been discovered until, hopefully we can say discovered until recently. So up until now, people have seen doctors who are either knowledgeable and can recognize this in the patient, or oftentimes it's a knowledgeable patient going to a doctor and saying, do I have this, which can cause a really delayed diagnosis or rejection of an accurate diagnosis. Um, and so that can cause a long diagnostic odyssey is the term I've heard recently, and it's a very painful process. So mm -hmm. the goal is to one day have an equal process, a blood test where you can see a genetic variant and get a clear result and less stigma around this condition. I think the stigma is really a big problem of the diagnostic process. I agree. I hope that someday people don't have to go through that, have a, a quicker, more direct route to figuring out what's going on. Part of my background is when I was diagnosed, I had a friend, shout out to Holly Wilder. She doesn't have EDS, but she knew someone who had it and brought it up to me and said, hey, I think you might want to look into this. And I did, I read about it and everything clicked and 
I I had one month of insurance left on my parents' insurance, and I was like, I need an appointment stat. <laughs> so my journey was quite lucky in that the first person I brought this question to, I said, I think I have this. What do you think? This is with my list of things, pictures of me when I was a kid. I don't think the doctor looked at them, but I had them ready. <laughs> me bent into shapes. And the first person I asked said, you're right, you have this. And that is not a normal experience from what I hear from many, many people. They have to see lots of doctors and be told no, or it's in your head or it's something else like fibromyalgia or other conditions that can cause pain in joints. And it's just very messy. And if we could just have a test, a blood test, that would be so much more simple Mm -hmm. and save us some time and money and pain. Absolutely. Yeah, you did get lucky. And hopefully more and more people will be lucky like that, even before we might have an identified genetic variant, just with the growing awareness among the medical community. That's my hope that there are more doctors who can recognize it more quickly. And I know many of them are interested in learning about it. So fingers crossed on that. But why think it has taken so long to understand HEDS? Or why do you think we just don't really understand it genetically yet? That's a great question. And it may be just hard for you to answer. (laughs) Yeah, it may be hard to answer. All I'll say about that is that the candidate gene that we found that we believe at least accounts for some of HEDS is not a gene that would typically have been looked at for something like this. It wasn't obvious. But I guess to go on about that is this happened before I joined the lab, but the method they used to first figure this out is by having a really large family with multiple people with HEDS and a certain kind of spacing in their family, you know, a certain distance away. And so they were able to do genetic testing and map it on a pedigree, like a little family tree if you took genetics and map out who has which variants that we're seeing pop up in the sequencing and who is experiencing the symptoms and narrow it down from there in in basic terms. And that's how the first variant was found. Interesting. So basically, Victoria, are you saying that Norris Lab has identified a candidate gene or candidate genes that they feel may account for some portion of HEDS and that those results are obviously not available to the public yet, but hopefully will be soon. So what's that process? Is it in peer review? How does that go? Yeah, this is a a good question because I know it, it probably seems to the public like it's been something that we've been sitting on for a long time to back up. Yes, the Norris Lab found a gene with multiple variants, one that they've focused on, but we're seeing multiple and we're still learning how they might affect each other. And they identified this. We believe that this causes HEDS, at least for some people. The results are under peer review right now, which is a very long process. We need it to be really thoroughly reviewed and validated so that we can say it's true. And hopefully after that, it would be included on a blood test for connective tissue disorders. But 
Yeah, the peer review process is long. The science is long. From the beginning of the experiment, you have to decide where to look, how to look, get the study approved, (laughs) which is a long process itself, writing it out, the application to even do the work, Mm -hmm. and then get all of the necessary tools and saliva from people, and then do the experiments, and then write the paper, and then send it off for publishing and then they review it in multiple rounds and then finding the right publisher. So it's a very long process um, and we are definitely looking forward to being able to share the results and, and know that they've been heavily vetted. You make a really important point. I mean, I'm very excited and anticipation. I can't wait for the results to be published, but it's just so critical that the results um, are high quality. And that's the whole point of the peer review process. It's a really important piece of how science works. So just kind of let it take its course. But I know so many people are going to be so thrilled to learn about what you all have discovered. So can you describe a little bit about a day in the life at the lab? What's it like working in a lab like that? Be cool to be a fly on the wall. Yeah, I love it. I really do. This isn't an ad, but I love it. (laughs) I first had the opportunity to be an intern last summer in their summer program, which is really a special thing. It's devoted for people with EDS or HSD or family members that are interested in science and medicine. And they're training the next, next generation and hoping that what the students will learn that summer will be spread amongst their peers currently and in the future and onwards. And it's really a special thing. I learned a lot and I was able to come back and now I work full time there and there's a lot going on. We have so many projects. (laughs) I feel like two weeks ago, I got like four more projects to work on. (laughs) Half of the lab doesn't even work on EDS. The lab didn't start working on EDS. They work on cardiology, uh, cardiovascular diseases. So half the lab is on this whole other train and then half the lab is on EDS and there's experiments happening and I was joking with you a moment ago but anyone who gets to to visit we give them a tour of the the drawer of saliva (laughs) from all the DNA samples we've received but yeah I get to collaborate with a lot of surgeons on campus so we have some studies in the works with neurosurgery dermatology there's a trauma surgeon and an orthopedic surgeon. So we have a few new studies to, to collect some tissue samples and see what's going on a biology level. That's interesting. So tissue samples, are you all looking at the molecular goings on of the connective tissue, extracellular matrix, behavior of cells? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, something that I'm working on writing the application to do the study right now. There's a comorbidity of EDS called tethered cord syndrome. So tethered cord syndrome occurs when the phylum, which is below the tip of your spinal cord, it becomes rigid and inelastic and causes a stretching on your spinal cord. And we are fascinated by this. Why is this happening? Why is the surgery seeming to be quite successful in Dr. Patel's experience? That's who we're working with. So the plan for this study is to work with him. During the surgery, you have a small piece of the phylum taken out 
and that frees up your spinal cord to move appropriately. So I will actually be in the OR, and if the patient consents to be a participant in the research, we will collect the phylum and bring it to the lab and study it and find out on a cellular level, why is this happening? And it would be great. We would love to look for even biomarkers and be able to predict the disease when it's not seen on imaging is a big goal. Yeah, that's a big problem is in EDS patients, you can't see the tethered cord on imaging. And so you have to have a clinical diagnosis, which just like HEDS, we know clinical diagnosis can be a little bit fuzzy and we love a, a certain definitive test if we can get one. I see. I did not realize that about tethered cord. That must make it quite difficult to diagnose, but I hear about it a lot in the EDS community. So it seems to be a more prevalent situation among EDSers than among the general population. It's what I gather anyway. Yeah. I don't know the prevalence. Uh, I don't think it is known. I would love to know it, which brings me to another study we're working on, which is launched just a few weeks ago. We have a survey online. It's about 30 minutes and we really tried to make it as comprehensive as possible. Just asking about all the different manifestations and comorbidities. And we tried to capture the patient experience in a a quantitative way. It's, Mm -hmm. we wish we could just have essay responses, but it's hard to get data, which is what we need So if anyone's listening and they want to participate in the survey, it's open to anyone 18 years and up who has a confirmed diagnosis of EDS, any subtype, or HSD. That's excellent. I think I already took that survey because my saliva is in your drawer of spit at your lab. And so maybe because I already participated in one of the studies, I think it was sent to me automatically. Could that have been a thing? It's true. Yeah. I think it was very recent. I sent you that email. (laughs) Thank you for participating. Of course. I'm so happy to participate in any research that will help the plight of EDSers and HSDers. And speaking of HSD, what can you tell us about your take on whether or how it differs from hypermobile EDS. Clinically, we put these two together and they look almost identical. And one isn't a lesser diagnosis than the other as far as symptom severity necessarily. But I'm curious what you can tell us about that. Yeah, that is such a good question. (laughs) My personal opinion This doesn't come from our research necessarily, but my personal opinion is I believe they're the same or maybe different subtypes of HEDS. Mm. So far, there's no prevalence number on HEDS that I could find. And really, EDS and HSD vary so widely in presentation between person to person. Even within families, people can look really different um, and experience different things. So my personal opinion is I think they're the same until we're told otherwise. For the purposes of research, you have to really narrow things in so that you can be sure what you're looking at doesn't have variety within it. Mm-hmm. if at all possible. So as far as research, until we start to know more to build off of, that's why some of our things have to be 
just for EDS or whatnot, but whatever it is true, I'm happy to hear it. And I can't wait to find out. <laughs> yeah, me too. And okay, going with these aren't well understood yet. And this is what we have. Here's the diagnostic criteria as it currently stands for HEDS, it may change. And then we'll use a different set of criteria. And if you don't qualify for the HEDS diagnosis as it is right now, it doesn't mean you don't have a thing that's just as significant. It just means that right now we call it a different thing. We call it HSD, but your symptoms are as they are, they still matter and they don't carry less weight. And I think it's interesting, the thought that maybe we'll find out that there are a variety of subtypes within HEDS, who knows? Now I find myself seeing such incredible variety among people with HEDS and HSD. I just saw someone this week who is picture perfect according to the current diagnostic criteria. This person has HEDS and just textbook. But what they don't have is so many of the other commonly co-occurring conditions that I see in almost all my other clients who have hypermobility syndromes. They don't get dizzy. (laughs) They don't seem to have histamine issues. It's fascinating. Yeah. I feel like I even fall under that category too. I don't have POTS. I get dizzy, but I don't have POTS. And I don't know if I have MCAS. I haven't needed to look into it yet. Mm-hmm. I've heard it can be really mild. And I know there's a lot of an- anecdotal things, but I have a lot of the joint things. So it is kind of funny. I feel like I can't compare myself even in the lab to other people who have EDS. Mm-hmm. And Something from our genetic registry that we're looking into is we are seeing that there might be some clusters of Mm -hmm. people and symptoms, and I can't speak to what they are, but let's say for an example, maybe there's a cluster of people who have more neurological symptoms and maybe ADHD or a cluster of people with joint and MCAS. We're just seeing kind of groupings of things. Those were made up. You can leave this in, but don't quote me on it. Those would be like hypothetical examples of potential clusters. (laughs) Exactly. And it would be really helpful to know if these exist because then you could know, oh, if I have EDS, HEDS, and I have this one comorbidity, I'm probably more likely to have these other ones. And you can map out who to see, what to expect. Because I know for myself personally, when I was first diagnosed, I read all of these comorbidities and I freaked out. I was like, I was in a painful cycle mentally of just expecting the worst, expecting that all of them would happen. And that isn't true. But if there was a way to kind of predict what might occur, I think that could be really beneficial. Yeah, that's really interesting and would be very beneficial. I see what you're saying, that there may be clusters of comorbidities, like a HEDS with a certain flavor and this HEDS with kind of a different flavor. I like calling them flavors, but I'm going to steal that. (laughs) More... I, and I'll leave I'll leave the note that more work needs to be done on that, but that's something we've started to see. So, so if, maybe, it, yeah. if it's true, you'll see it. It'll be published. Yeah. yeah. What must be so exciting about working at a lab like yours is that there's so much research. It's endless, you know, to study all, all the things that we need to understand about these conditions. 
I'm never bored. There are plenty of projects that in one day I'll be working on three different things all at the same time, basically. I know the wheels move slowly, but hopefully a lot of new research will be coming out. Yeah. In some of these studies, like the genetic variant study, all the saliva, how many samples did you all collect? Yeah. To date, it's just under 2,000. And we applied to increase the amount Mm -hmm. so that we can validate everything we've already found. Basically, just do it, do it again, do it again, do it again, (laughs) and keep building on it. We had more than 2,000 people eligible, so we're hoping to be able to get more people involved that are already signed up. That's great. Another reason why it would be so helpful for physicians to gain the confidence and the familiarity with making the diagnosis so that more people could participate in your study. (laughs) Exactly. I always tell friends of mine who, being a dancer, I'm like, I'm pretty sure a lot of you have EDS. (laughs) You're all pretty bendy. So I always tell them, well, if you get a diagnosis, you could help me out. (laughs) You could help the research. Yeah. I was recently, a couple of weeks ago in a group of yoga teachers, and I was giving them a presentation about hypermobility syndromes and yoga. And it was so funny because we went through some of the assessments and we looked at the diagnostic checklist just for fun. And I showed people what some of the different pieces meant. And out of the group of maybe 10 of us, there was only one person who didn't have a lot of the things. (laughs) Like when we were looking at our heels and the little piezogenic papules, everybody had them (laughs) except this one person. So it's really funny to move around in those populations where it's almost becomes normal to your eyes to see that level of range of motion. So just interesting. Yeah, that was definitely my experience and being around dancers. And so it almost probably took me longer to get diagnosed because I was like, oh, my job is to do the splits. Like, (laughs) why would I question that? Yeah, it's funny. Thinking about medical research and all the resources that go into large studies like this, can you describe where your lab sits in terms of your ability to receive funding for research? I don't know much about that whole world, but I know that it's a big world and there are lots of research dollars that have to be allocated in different directions and for conditions that have been considered rare. I mean, they deserve studies too, but I imagine that you're vying for resources with a lot of other conditions that also need to be studied. I am fortunate in that I don't have to be the one dealing with the money. Although I do see as I help the lab apply to do research, it does get very tricky. In the upcoming studies we have, there's one experiment that is really state-of-the-art and becoming the norm. It's a great way to learn more about sequencing. The title of this experiment is single cell RNA sequencing, and it's very expensive. I do not run that experiment, but I've heard that it costs like five or $10,000 just to do one run. Wow. (laughs) So yes, it is very expensive to be in this field. Definitely, we need money to continue doing research. I think the Norris Lab has been lucky in a lot of ways with philanthropy and people who are really dedicated to EDS and furthering the research. But yeah, it's a very expensive field. I, I think the lab does a good job of giving 
back in a way too. It's not money, but it's mice. Chip is really dedicated to furthering the research on EDS, especially the more rare types. And so since we've created the first HEDS mouse model with the candidate gene to study the biology behind HEDS, we realized that the other subtypes don't necessarily have mouse models. So we, using CRISPR-Cas9 technology, are in the process of creating other mouse models for each of the subtypes. Our goal is to have one for each subtype, and we will be giving them away for free to researchers who are interested in studying the conditions. So if you're a researcher and you're interested in studying the subtypes, get in contact. There's a page on our website. That's really cool to hear about. And I imagine that once your results are published and we get to learn more about the prevalence of HEDS and HSD and whatever we learn about these conditions over the next little bit here. Hopefully that will drive more resources to become available to study it further, because at least what I am imagining is that we're going to find out the prevalence is like mind blowing. <laughs> so I'm looking around thinking when we finally get our heads around this prevalence, I think it's going to just be shocking. I know that the most recent number is one in 500 from the study in Wales, and I would imagine it's higher based on the fact that not everyone is diagnosed with it yet. And you're completely right. The economic burden of this disease is huge. So once we really know and have a grasp of that, I think there will just have to be more funding in it. So another reason to get diagnosed, <laughs> get diagnosed, and then you are helping push the, the progress for the disorder, both on the medical awareness, the social awareness, and the research and the funding and everything. So I'm saying get diagnosed like it's easy, but <laughs> if you have the option, I would recommend it. That is true. A lot of barriers to diagnosis, but I'm a big advocate for diagnosis as well. I see it as a public service for all the reasons you just mentioned, but you're right. It's hard to get a diagnosis. So it's all about finding a medical provider who is interested in learning with you about it and moving in those directions. And I think, like I said before, I do think there are more and more out there who can fill that role because yeah. doctors are seeing a lot of people with these clusters of symptoms and it's not fun to feel helpless in that in position. So I think yeah. people want more. Yeah. I'm also hopeful. I've had a friend who recently was diagnosed and all of the doctors she's seen recently have been quite knowledgeable or surprisingly knowledgeable compared to how, what I hear. And so I do think it is becoming more common knowledge among people and also among physicians. So I think you're on track with that optimism. And it feels better than the alternative <laughs> to be optimistic. Yeah, true. But also I see evidence for it too, just in my own anecdotal life in my one little spot here. But I'm definitely hopeful in hearing about some of the work you all are doing and knowing that this lab exists and that there are even other labs besides the Norris lab that are working on important research, all moving us towards greater understanding and hopefully earlier diagnosis and optimal treatment so that people live better lives with these conditions. So I do think there's some reason for hopefulness and I'm excited to find out what emerges here from your research, hopefully in the very near future. So too, yeah. All right, Victoria, thank you again for joining us. It's been such an interesting conversation. I really appreciate your time and again, appreciate the work that you're doing on behalf of all of us zebras out here. 
Thank you, Libby. It's been a pleasure, definitely. And I admire everyone who's dedicated to spreading awareness and podcasts are a great way to do that. So thank you. Thanks a lot. And listeners, if you'd like to find out more about Victoria and her work, you can find her on Instagram at geneticallybendy. Also, you can find out more about the work happening at the Norris Lab at the Medical University of South Carolina, where Victoria works. The website for that is thenorrislab.com. That's thenorris, N-O-R-R-I-S-L-A-B.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you in the next episode. (music) 